and I appreciated the music today. Uh, thank you, Pastor Chad, for choosing that and leading us in worship. When I woke up this morning, I uh, just couldn't stop thinking about our missionaries uh, serving all over the globe, and the Lord brought several to mind, and I'd like to lead us in prayer now for them. Lord, we want to pray today for the Eager family on their way back to Mexico with their transmission uh, blowing up, and Lord, thank you that that got fixed, and they're now back home. Lord, we pray for the Joyce family. Um, Wow, just praying uh, for her having dengue fever and for him having COVID. Lord, we pray for healing for both of them. Lord, the Zemkis are asking for prayer for an outreach coming up, and Lord, we also pray for the Contreras family as they minister to women who are being trafficked, and they're also asking specific prayer for a young man that they've been witnessing to who's been arrested for murder. Uh, Lord, we pray for his salvation. And Lord, uh, finally today, we want to pray also for the missionaries who've been taken hostage in Haiti. Lord, we pray for their release. Lord, we pray for your gospel to penetrate the captors. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would work your way and your will in this situation. Lord, you've now assembled us here on purpose for your purposes. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be able to understand your word clearly. Uh, Lord, help us not battle against you, but instead to participate in what you're wanting to do in our lives, in our minds, and then ultimately through our hands in our feet as we put into practice what you have for us today. May you be honored, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Caleb Gregson pastors an English-speaking church in Central Asia, and recently he wrote a very intriguing article. Here's the title. The title made me want to read it. It was called Friendship, the Foundation of Paul's Global Ministry. Here's just one sentence. One of Paul's most consistent values may surprise us. Friendship. Consider how in nearly every letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, he devotes space to greeting specific believers by name. Well, this caused me to dig a little deeper into Paul's partnerships. Here's the first thing I wrote down. Christianity is a team sport. Are you aware Paul mentions over 100 people by name in the New Testament? In Romans chapter 16 alone, he lists 26 people. If you're using the Edgewood Bible reading plan on Friday, you read these words from Paul written right before he died in 2 Timothy 4. So right before he dies, he's got people on his mind. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. In the passage for today, Titus chapter 3, he lists four names in just one verse. Paul was not a lone ranger Christian. He knew that he was part of a team. And without supportive friends and partners literally around the world, the gospel would not have spread as quickly as it did. 
Secondly, friendship is a key part of discipleship. Our sanctification should extend to all our relationships. So as we live out the supremacy of Christ in our lives, it will, it must affect our interaction with others. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens what? Iron. So one man, one woman sharpens another. The church was created to be a community of interdependent people. And together we sharpen one another. Next, friendships develop through shared experiences. Most of Paul's relationships were nurtured in the crucible of ministry partnerships. Listen, some of the best friends you will ever find are friends you meet as you minister together in and through Edgewood. If you're relatively new to Edgewood, some of you are. Maybe you look around like, man, how am I going to meet people here? It's hard on a weekend service. You come in, you might talk to the person next to you. People then leave and you're like, I don't know anybody. Here's a suggestion. Plug into a group, attend a ministry event, look for a way to serve. Talk to someone last night. He's brand new here and he said, I'm making hot dogs in the kitchen tomorrow night. That's cool. Next, people are more important than programs. It's important to remember, ministry flows along relational rivers. Every name matters to God. You matter to God. No matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you might feel, how burdened you might feel, you will never look into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to God. And then the final thing I wrote down, it's beneficial to have friends who are different from you. Some of us have friends who are just like us. Well, sometimes it's good to have friends who are different from us. Consider the Apostle Paul. He was friends with a doctor and a runaway slave. He had friends who were Jewish in background. He had other friends who did not even know who Abraham was. He hung out with guys. He had rapport with women. He was closer to some than others. Most were givers. A few were goers. Several were old. A handful were young. Most were faithful, but some were fickle. Now, as we've been traveling verse by verse through the book of Acts, I've been struck by how the gospel has literally turned the world upside down. So it launches in Jerusalem. From there, it explodes with growth to the surrounding area, Judea. From there to Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. That's what we've been learning through the book of Acts. And we've looked at Paul's methods. We've studied what he's done. We've asked the Lord, Lord, what do you have for us as a church as we look at how the early church ministered? And what does the Lord have for each of us individually? Last weekend, we were in Acts chapter 17. We established this truth. If we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges to them, not barriers to them. Well, today we're in Acts chapter 18, and we're going to see this truth. God providentially works through people in process. That's each of us. We're in process. He does all that to accomplish his purposes. Now, we're going to begin by reading a larger chunk of scripture than we normally do. But we're simply following the admonition found in 1 Timothy 4.13, which says this, until I come, devote yourself to the public 
reading of Scripture. The letters that Paul read to, uh, sent to churches were designed to be read out loud in one sitting to the whole uh, congregation. Well, the book of Acts is 28 chapters. We're not going to read all 28 today, but I do want us to hear from God's word, Acts chapter 18. I counted in this chapter 11 different names of individuals, and I'll emphasize them while I read it. I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, when we're done, when you're done, uh, we're done reading this, then we'll circle back around for some exhortation and some teaching. Uh, Let me just say a few things before I start reading. Number one, it's normal and natural for the mind to wander. This is a larger section of scripture. I'm going to ask you to stay engaged, to lock in, follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. If you want to follow along, we have Bibles in front of you. I'll also have it up on the screen. Here's one way that'll help us focus is by reminding ourselves that this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. And sometimes people say, I wish God would speak to me. He has. He has. So let's listen with reverence, with a sense of awe, with a spirit of humility, as we consider this is actual history. This is what God did in the past, and he's still working in the presence. In the present. So listen then as I read, beginning in Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. This tells us why they were there, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked. For they were tent makers by trade. Notice what he did when he was there. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul, I love this phrase, was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. He said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, beginning in verse 9, we get some insight into Paul's soul. Many of us think Paul was this guy who never struggled. Well, actually, he did. He struggled with fear and anxiety. And so listen to what we read in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people, as a result of that. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, he kind of shuts them down here, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, 
See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Well, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. He did that often. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. This guy's on fire. He spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Thank you so much for your... Yeah, amen to God's word. You can be seated. Now, let's get our bearings by looking at a map. So this is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, if you can't read all the cities, that's okay. We just kind of get the feel of it. Over on the far right is Syria. He left from the city of Antioch, went through Cilicia, that's the purple area, and then to the area of Galatia, stopped in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. That's a second Antioch. Then he goes into Asia. That's a different Asia than what we would consider Asia uh, today. He tries to go north, the spirit wouldn't let him. He tries to go south. Spirit wouldn't let him. He's like, where do I go? He just kept going, lands on the coast at Troas, where he sees a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come over and help us. He jumps on a ship. He crosses the Aegean Sea, lands in Neapolis, spends time in Philippi, then makes his way to Thessalonica, to Berea. And then last week we saw that he traveled 200 miles then to the city of Athens. That's the green area there on the left. From Athens, he lands in Corinth, which is our passage today. Now, Corinth, well, Corinth was known for international commerce, a lot of activity going on, and it was known for rampant immorality. Its main attraction was the temple of Aphrodite or Venus, which employed 1,000 temple prostitutes who went down into the city every night, went back to the temple in the morning. In the Roman Empire, when someone wanted to speak of the most immoral kind of life, they would say this about the individual. They are playing the Corinthian. So I was trying to think, in our culture, what would Corinth be like? Well, actually, I don't know for sure, but perhaps Las Vegas. 
Friends, God providentially works through people in process to accomplish his purposes. So let's lean in and let's see how God worked his purposes through people, imperfect people, people in process in very specific places. Here's why. Because he does the same thing today. And he wants to use you and I for his purposes. Several weeks ago, we defined the doctrine of God's providence this way. Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for, listen, and directs all things in the universe. So friends, number one, let's see our work as a platform for ministry. In verses one through three, we see how God providentially arranged for Paul to meet two Jews named Aquila and Priscilla. Well, how'd that all happen? Well, Paul goes from Antioch to Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila got there a little bit different way. They lived in Rome, and there was an emperor there. His name was Claudius, and he made an edict. It was anti-Semitic, something that Hitler later did. He wanted all the Jews to leave Rome, so the Jews scattered. And so this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they land in Corinth. Paul's now in Corinth, but there's something else that brought them together. All three of them are tent makers. And so they start working together as tent makers. Now, don't think of tents with the poles, the big tents that we kind of do. Think of a smaller tent made out of goat hair or leather. It could be put on someone's back. Travelers would use that. We see here the importance and value of work. The English word vocation comes from the Latin word for calling. Your occupation is a calling from God. You can work as unto the Lord where you work. Listen, even if you don't like your job, you can work as unto the Lord for his glory and you can be looking for ways to be a witness for him. So as they work together, they talk together. Paul actually ended up living with them. It was very common. The shops down in the lower level, people would sleep up above that. He was able to pour into them every day. He talked to them about Jesus in that informal setting while they're making tents. Would you also note, he also went to the synagogue, so he, informal setting, and then in a more formal setting where he reasoned and preached to Jewish people there. So Aquila and Priscilla are benefiting from the informal conversation and the more formal teaching times. Friends, listen, God loves to bring people together for his purposes. You were not here by accident today. You were here by design on purpose. If you're connecting via cozy or live stream, that's not by accident. God has something for you today. Ultimately, he wants all of us to connect with him, to make sure we're surrendered to him, and to be in relationship with others. Aquila and Priscilla were discipled daily by Paul, this is a power couple because eventually they start hosting a church in their home because God has their heart, God has their hands, and God has their home as well. 
Friends, God providentially works through people in process to accomplish his purposes. Here's the second principle I wrote down. Be quick to give what God has given to you. In verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth. Now, we know from Philippians 4.15 that they brought an offering with them. The church at Philippi took up a collection. They, They came with that collection, gave it to the apostle Paul. This allowed him to be occupied with the word, which means to be seized by scripture, to be pressed and compelled. Let me say it like this. Because of the faithful giving of God's people, Paul was able to devote himself exclusively to the exegesis and exposition of the scripture so he could stop working at making tents and focus on full-time ministry. Edgewood, on behalf of the pastoral team here, thank you so much for giving sacrificially, generously to God's work here. As you give, the pastoral team can be occupied with the word without having to get another job, which many pastors do. Some church planting pastors are working a full-time job and preparing and preaching sermons and shepherding a church. Friends, we should never call them part-time pastors. No, they are all in serving. So thank you so much for your giving. And when you give, you're also supporting our 70-some missionaries and uh, mission organizations, our Go Team partners, our ministries like Celebrate Recovery and Awana, our facility expenses, our mortgage payments, many other ways that you're making a kingdom impact. On top of that, many of you are so quick to meet an individual need when you hear about it. All you have to do is hear the need. Somebody needs a meal, you see a meal train, you're like, I got it, I got that night. You hear someone going through a hard time, you're like, I want to buy some groceries. Just this week, I was meeting with a new Christian, and he heard about a need that a family had. And he quickly gave to help meet that need. And I'll never forget, he had a huge smile on his face. And this is what he said, that family needs it more than I do. Friends, God providentially works through people, people like you, people like me. We're all in process and he does that to accomplish his purposes. Third thing we see is that we're called to live on mission with our neighbors. So watch this. In his providence, God moved Paul into relationship with another person. Uh, I'm in verse 7 here where I see this, verse 7. He left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul went from living with a Jewish background couple and now he's living with a Gentile. Brothers and sisters, God has you right now. He may move you, but he has you right now where you are for his purposes. Whether you're living in a dorm, an apartment, a condo, a mobile home, or a house. See your neighbors as your mission field. Check out verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. 
Remember, Paul moved next door. So now this guy comes to Christ together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The name Crispus means curly. (laughs) For some reason, that makes me smile. I don't know why. You know, Paul didn't baptize many people. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 tells us he baptized curly. <laughs> also, we see he took his parenting seriously. He's pouring into his children because his entire family comes to faith in Christ. God providentially works through people in process to accomplish his purposes. Now, it's at this point, if you're following the life of the Apostle Paul, it was not easy. And Paul's ministering in this sin-soaked society filled with immorality. And he's got conflict and he's afraid. So number four, keep speaking for God. It's easy to become discouraged and disheartened. You know, we don't think of Paul who got Paul as one who got afraid, but would you listen to verses 9 through 11? And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That phrase, do not be afraid, the tense of that is Paul was afraid. He was continuously afraid. So God encouraged Paul by giving him three promises. First promise was of his presence. Be reminded that the Lord is with you, Paul. That goes back to the last phrase of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you, what? Always even to the end of the age. Secondly, the promise of his protection. He says, no one will attack you to harm you. And then thirdly, the promise of his purpose. God is working his purpose out through Paul. And Paul needed to keep preaching because Jesus said, I have many in this city who are my people who still need to hear the word of God. Now, as a result of this encouragement, Paul continued to minister in Corinth for eight months. Friends, when you're struggling, oh, hold on to the promises of God. Hold on to the promise of his presence, his protection, and hold on to the promise that he is accomplishing his purposes in you and through you. Number five, ask God to work through government officials. (laughs) In verses 12 through 17, the Jewish leaders accuse Paul of breaking the law So they bring, they haul Paul before a government official. That guy's name is Gallio. In essence, Gallio honored the protection of church and state. Imagine that. He threw the case out and he drove Paul's enemies away. By the way, his decision allowed the gospel a measure of legal protection in the Roman Empire for about 10 years. It eventually changed. Friends, having said that, don't you wish our government would be more conscious of God and his ways? That our government would recognize religious freedom and morality? This week, just sharing from my heart here, I was grieved when both the Illinois Senate and the House, late at night, voted to repeal the Parental Notice of Abortion Act. By the way, that's why Christians need to vote. 
Now, you'll never hear who to vote for here. We're not going to get into that. But listen, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to get registered to vote and then vote and vote biblical values. Now, the enemies are so upset that their case got thrown out. They take it all out on a guy named Sothenes. He's the new synagogue ruler, and they end up beating him. Interestingly, that guy, Sosthenes, came to Christ, and he served as a ministry partner with the Apostle Paul. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 1.1 begins. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. He's with Paul as he writes the church in Corinth. God providentially works through people who are in process to accomplish his purposes. Number six, view every place you go, wherever you go, as a platform for ministry. After staying in Corinth, Paul set sail for Syria. And we read here that he made some kind of vow. We don't know what it is, but he cut his hair as part of it. It's a good reminder for us to keep our vows, whether it's a vow you make to God or a vow you make to your spouse. Paul's next stop was Ephesus, where he went into the synagogue and reasoned daily. Let's get our bearings again. So he's over on the far left in the city of Corinth, that green area. He crosses the Aegean Sea, and he lands in the city of Ephesus. When he gets there, he goes into the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews. Interesting. Several couple years earlier, he tried to go down to Ephesus, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. Now he goes to Ephesus and he'll come back to Ephesus on his third journey as well. We're reminded that God's timing is often different than ours. Well, in verse 20, the Ephesian believers want Paul to stay even longer. Paul's answer showed his trust in the providence of God. And this this is something that we should start saying verbally because it's a good reminder for us. And it's true. I will return to you if... God wills. Friends, that's not just a spiritual slogan or a Christian cliche. If God wills, I will do this or that. That's what James 4.15 says. Later on, Paul does come back to Ephesus. Now, Paul continued his journey back to ascending church in in Antioch with layover. So he lands in Caesarea, goes to Jerusalem, something to do with his vow there, then shoots up to Antioch. And now we're in the third missionary journey. So now Paul again is at Antioch. That's his sending church, his home church. He leaves there. He goes through Cilicia, again through Galatia, through Asia, and he lands in Ephesus again. Paul was so committed to helping Christians grow that he traveled far and wide to equip them wherever he was. That word strengthen means to fix, establish permanently, and to confirm. Friends, so listen, here's how we can apply this. Wherever you are this week, See yourself as there on purpose. Ask God what person he wants you to connect with. When you're at the DMV in Alito, because you don't want to wait in line here, ask God who you want. he wants you to talk to. Wherever you are, where you're in a grocery store, you're on campus, because God providentially works through people in process to accomplish his purposes. Number seven, be a disciple who disciples others. 
At Edgewood, we define discipleship this way. A disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus. But we don't leave it there. And intentionally helps others follow him. Each of us must lovingly follow Jesus and then intentionally be involved in other people's lives to help them do the same. When Jesus called some fishermen, he gave them their purpose. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We're to grow and then bring others along with us. 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, comma, who will be able to teach others also. We could say it like this. A devoted disciple is one who disciples other disciples, who in turn disciple more disciples. Discipleship is to go from me to you to faithful men and women to others. This is illustrated beautifully in Acts, 20, Acts verses 24 to 28. We're introduced to Apollos, a disciple in process. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Alexandria was the second most important city in the Roman Empire. It was located in northern Egypt. It was a city of scholars. It became home to men like Philo, Tertullian, Augustine. It also was a home to like one million Jews. One of those Jews was Apollos, who was born and raised in Alexandria, but had a Greek name. Due to so many Greek-speaking Jews in Alexandria, a translation was developed. Perhaps you've heard the name of it, the Septuagint. That's a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Now, here's some things we know about Apollos. He was eloquent. He was competent in the scriptures. That word competent is where we get the word dynamite. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. The word fervent means boiling. This guy was on fire. So he taught correctly, but incompletely. Apollos knew a lot about the scriptures, but he had a discipleship deficit. What was his deficit? He only knew about the baptism of John. What was John's baptism? It was a baptism of repentance, a repentance of works to prepare people for Jesus. In essence, Apollos didn't understand God's grace. He didn't have a full understanding of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He didn't fully understand the power of the resurrection, and he didn't understand the promised filling of the Holy Spirit. I love what happens next, verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, notice they don't talk about him. They don't embarrass him publicly by interrupting him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Paul, Priscilla and Aquila were discipled by Paul. They now initiate a discipling relationship with Apollos. They took the time to fill in the gaps for him. After Apollos was discipled, he wanted to disciple those who lived in Achaia. So they're in Ephesus. He wants to go back across the Aegean, back to the Corinth area. Because he was discipled privately, he now gets to declare Jesus publicly. And after he's discipled, Apollos received a lot of encouragement. So the guys who knew him well, they encouraged him. They even wrote letters of recommendation on his behalf and sent him off 
to the Christ followers in the area of Achaia. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace, ah, now he understands God's grace. Through grace, he had believed. Do you know today is the anniversary of the Reformation? And we affirm with thousands of gospel-preaching churches the five basic summary statements of the Reformation. In Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, after being fully equipped, Apollos is able to make powerful arguments from the scriptures about how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. The Apostle Paul discipled Aquila and Priscilla. Listen, they in turn discipled Apollos, who discipled many others in the region of Achaia. However, That discipleship chain didn't start with the Apostle Paul. It goes back to a lesser-known guy. His name was Ananias. No, not the Ananias in Acts chapter 5. He lost his life. This is another Ananias. He spoke into Paul. Listen to Acts 9.17. This is what he said. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Later, Paul referred to Ananias with great fondness. He said this, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. He was the one who urged Paul to get baptized. And shortly after, Barnabas stood up for Paul. We also read in Acts 9.19, Other believers poured into Paul. We could diagram it like this. Ananias, who we don't think much about, discipled Paul. Paul discipled Aquila and Priscilla. They, in turn, disciple Apollos. He then crosses the Aegean Sea to evangelize and disciple individuals in Achaia. Pastor Kyle has a whiteboard in his office, and He has this whiteboard to visually demonstrate the intentional discipleship relationships taking place here at Edgewood. Now, this is probably not 100% accurate because there are people meeting with others to help disciple that we're not aware of. And this is organic and changes with time, but it gives you a picture of all the discipling relationships that we're aware of. Down at the bottom here, those individuals are all leaders and celebrate recovery. They're also pouring into others to help disciple them. If you were to add all of that up, that's like, oh, and we have some growth groups studying discipleship material. That's like 70 to 80 people. I'd love for us to double that uh, number and even more. When we examine Paul's ministry in Corinth, we see how it follows the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. To the very end of the age. Paul came to Corinth. That's the go part. He discipled believers. That's making disciples. He baptized. 
He taught them to obey, and he even experienced the truth of that last phrase, that Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. God providentially works through people in process to accomplish his purposes. Well, let's land this message by focusing on some ways we can put it into practice. Number one, if you want to jumpstart your spiritual growth and you want to meet some new friends in the process, why not attend one of our weekend growth groups or one of our electives? We offer a group on Saturday afternoons at 3.30. There's a group that meets at 8 a.m. Sunday morning, and there's a number of groups that meet during the 9 o'clock hour and the 10.45 hour. There's a number of groups meeting right now. Number two, look for ways to intentionally live on mission on your campus, in your workplace, and in your neighborhood. And when you get to know someone, look for a way to compliment them, like we learned last week, and make a connection to the gospel. Number three, identify a Christian in your network of relationships who's got a gap somewhere. Maybe they don't know something. Maybe they're just starting out. Maybe they're struggling with assurance of salvation. They, they, they need some help. Come alongside them. Reach out to them this week. Number four, if you're not presently in a discipling relationship, what one step can you take this week to begin one? And if you want us to help you connect with someone, we can do that as well. Number five, if you're a parent or a grandparent, how about making sure that you intentionally disciple your children or your grandchildren? Psalm 78 says he commanded our ancestors to do what? To teach their children. Why? So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. One of the individuals in that video is Robin Johnson, and she's part of that intentional discipleship group. And Robin, I'm going to ask you to come up front. Robin wrote something on Facebook this week that I have not been able to get out of my mind. And yesterday, when I got up and was going over the message, God brought it back to my mind again. And so I contacted Robin like at 8 in the morning yesterday, like, how's that for a heads up? And I said, Robin, what you wrote is so moving. Could I have permission to share it? And then I said, or you could share it. I gave her an out if you wanted it. I knew it was last minute. And you said, well, if it's going to help others, I'm glad to do it. So, uh, Robin, you're a special education teacher at Denkman Elementary School here in Rock Island. And you had an experience this week. Do you want to share that with us? Yes. So on Tuesday this past week, we just had a rough morning at our school fire alarm was not working correctly, so it was just going off a lot. Um, So at the end of the day, this is what I posted on Facebook, and I'm going to read it more than try to just tell you, but um, I sat in the mud with my students today. After about the third or fourth time the fire alarm went off, in little over an hour, my high sensory students just couldn't handle it. The noise, the disruption to their structure and routine, the crowd of students... And the overall sensory overload was just too much for them. So we sat down together. I sat down in the cold and muddy pavement to give them a safe landing place, me. While we just sat and rocked, while one cried and screamed, because that's all he knew how to communicate in the moment, and another held on tightly to me and just rested his head. This is what we're called to do, is to sit with each other in the mud, the hard parts of life, and be a safe landing place for one another. 
God also meets us right where we are, are all covered in mud. And that's what we need to do for one another also, just sit in the mud together. Amen. Thank you so much, Robin. I wanted to put that picture in our minds because as we're dismissed in just a minute, we all go where God takes us. And as we go, we're around people in need, messy, muddy people. And God calls us to sit in the mud with them. Thank you for modeling that and for living on mission where you work and ministering to those uh, dear children. Jesus came to our muddy and messed up world. And he came to provide a safe landing place for us. Through his death and resurrection, he provided a way for you and I to be saved from our sins and to find security and safety in relationship with him. And if you've never received the free gift of eternal life, you could do that right now by repenting of your sins, by turning to Christ and asking him to save you. Would you join me in prayer? God, I pray for that individual either engaged online or right here who's not yet been saved. Lord, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. Jesus, thank you that you came to our messed up world. Thank you that you came to save sinners. And if that describes you today or where you're at, where you're ready to admit that you have a problem, you could say something like, Jesus, I am messed up. And I'm dirty. And I'm tired of living the way I've been living. I repent now. I turn from that. And I turn to you, Jesus. Thank you that you died on the cross in my place as my substitute. That you shed your blood. And Father, thank you that you accepted that as full and final payment for all my sins. And Jesus, thank you that you didn't stay dead, that you rose again on the third day. And you've defeated death. You've defeated my own depravity. You've defeated the devil himself. And so, Lord, I know that. And I want to go further, though, Lord, by a decision of my will. I choose to trust you, Jesus. I ask you to come into my life. Save me from my sins. I want to be born again. And then, Lord, as you come in, would you make some wholesale changes? Because there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And then use me as your disciple in the lives of others. Lord, do all this for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I would love to talk to you after the service. I can get you some discipleship materials to get you started in your walk with Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, friends, go and sit in the mud with someone this week. You're dismissed. Have a great rest of the day.